You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where I often wonder what kind of herb would go with peaches. Welcome back to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two Drew Freaks Internet Radio Network. Hi everyone, my name is Sean Eagle, and as always, I'm here to cover the Green Lantern comics, specifically the ones from the 1990s leading up to the 2000s, around 2004, ending off there. Mostly, I'm going to be talking about characters that I really love, basically Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner. And technically, Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner are both featured very prominently in the books I'm going to be covering today. The first book, of course, is the Green Lantern book, issue number 121, in which Kyle wakes up to find himself on a new planet, populated by Green Lanterns, and being married to Jade. What the heck's going on? Last issue, he was fighting against a Romanian assassin, and saving his friend Radu from being shot. Now he's on a weird alien planet populated by an entirely new Green Lantern Corps and married to Jenny Lynn Hayden, plus Gant that's around with a weird scar in his face. Just what the heck is going on? The uh, ending of the story might lead a little bit into explaining all this, but we'll get to that in our coverage here in a few. Plus, I also get to talk a little bit about Guy Gardner in our second book today, which is going to be Green Lantern's Secret Files and Origins, which essentially was... Well, it wasn't technically a who's who issue, but essentially most of the stuff inside of it could be considered who's who material. There's a lot of individual... Well, I guess you could call them who's who entries on a bunch of the characters that were permeating the Green Lantern book around this time. Not only heroes, but villains as well. Uh, there's some really nice artwork in the story, and there's a tale from the Warriors Bar where Guy Gardner recounts the Green Lantern legacy, including his, John Stewart's, Hal Jordan's, and Kyle's, and gives you a little info about who was the first person to actually get the ring after Hal Jordan went all bonkers and everything. But we'll be getting to that, as well as Green Lantern number 121, after I play these podcast promos, so... Stay tuned for that, right after I plug some awesome shows that you should all be listening to. to battle stations engage Captain Picard is a pain isn't he interesting no redeeming qualities I think you should be destroyed the great Captain Picard of Starfleet falls to earth Go back. Thou shalt most certainly die. Protect yourself, Captain, within destroying. We are dangerous. What can I offer except myself? Can you just get down to it, please? 
Join the two true freaks, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell, for Star Trek Monthly Monday. Every month, the freaks will bring you two episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation and more. Episodes of Star Trek Monthly Monday can be found for free at twotruefreaks.com. They can also be downloaded for free from iTunes. What's wrong, Star Wars fans? Disney. Disney killed the expanded universe. They killed the whole thing. It's dead. Every single book. Not just the novels, but the comics. And the video games, too. It's like they're just stories, and Disney threw them out like stories. I hate them. Okay? Star Wars fans, relax. Here, have a Snickers. No one destroyed your Star Wars Expanded Universe. In fact, I'm going to give you a whole new opportunity to go back and explore all those books and comics that have helped to shape and mold this universe we love so much. Join me on the Star Wars Saga Cast, where I'll be walking through the various branches of the Star Wars Expanded Universe, much of it for my very first time. I'll be bringing you short episodes that review comics, longer episodes that explore the novels, and in-film commentaries, because you know you're just dying to hear what some random guy on the internet has to say about movies that you've seen a hundred times before. You know you are. So come along for the Star Wars SagaCast at thestarwarssagacast.com. And we are back. And what you just heard there was a promo for a new podcast done by podcast extraordinaire, or podcaster extraordinaire, Mr. John M. Wilson. Like he doesn't have enough on his plate anyway. He's doing tons of podcasts, but he's decided to do a Star Wars podcast, focusing on, well, pretty much everything about Star Wars. And if I know John, I think it'll be very, very detailed, very interesting, but mostly very fun to listen to. Go check it out. Plus, also, around the time of this podcast coming out, the Assistant Editor's Month over at Two True Freaks should be well in hand, and you should see a little bit of shake-up between some of the shows. In fact, uh, a couple of people and I recorded a Star Trek Monthly Monday and also recorded a a separate Star Trek episode in which we talked about a couple of Star Trek episodes. That's kind of redundant, I guess. But yeah, uh, it should come out, I think, immediately... Well, no, it should be coming out right after this episode is released, so hopefully you guys will check out these uh, Assistant Editors Month Star Trek Monthly Mondays. Uh, oh, I might as well give who I recorded them with. We, Andy Leyland and uh, Paul Spataro recorded an episode of Deep Space Nine and an episode of Enterprise for Star Trek Monthly Monday, and we had a blast. And to be completely honest, if we could actually continue on the show and talk about Deep Space Nine from the beginning to the end and talk about Enterprise as well, we probably would. But unfortunately, that's up to Scott and Chris. You know, we don't want to hone in on their stuff, but doing this sort of assistant editor's month thing was awesome. I hope you guys should go check it out. I hope you are also ready for me to read a little bit of your email. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. (laughs) And as we open up the email bag at just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com, we've got a letter here from Mr. Michael Bradley, my co-host of the Tangent Podcast. Hopefully you guys took a listen to that. It should have been 
it should have came out about a week ago, I think, the first one where we talked about the Atom. But predominantly, he's the host of Superman and Batman, a podcast about, well, team-ups between Superman and Batman. That show is wholly, wholly amazing, and you also need to be listening to that as well. Plus, also on the Superman and Batman feed, he's doing a little segment about how he's preparing to run for a 5K race. And as you know, most of us people who are podcasters aren't in the best fit, aren't incredibly fit, to say the least. And the fact that Michael's going out and he's doing this pod or he's doing this podcast about getting ready to run in a 5K is awesome. And the fact that he's going to be running it is is amazing, too. I know I'm in average shape, I would say. But if I had to run a 5K, I would probably be, oh, pretty close to dead after it. So I really have got to give uh, kudos to Michael for going out and doing that. But Michael's email uh, starts up with the tagline of episode 117 of Startups and Annuals. He writes in, For what it's worth, NextPlanetOver.com was an internet retailer that focused on comics and other internet, er, sorry, other entertainment-related items. Talking about the advertisement of the... Uh, wrestler in the shorts ironing while watching tv there was an advertisement for next planet over it's weird anyway he continued saying they had forums and possibly a section with news and such like a lot of startups from around the time 2000 or so if i recall correctly npo eventually went belly up i remember lurking on their forums some and making a few friends there that i've long since lost touch with the forums went comedically out of control in the company's waning months once it was clear that no one was moderating them, and not just in an everyone's posting porn and spam way. More like, mom and dad just left the house full of nine-year-old kids alone for the weekend with nothing but a case of King Snyze Snickers bars and 50 cans of Red Bull way. Ouch. I hate it when forums go like that. The ad you saw was pretty, uh, yeah, I remember being told the same version ran in Marvel Comics around this time albeit with something that looked like Mjolnir hanging on the wall. I've never seen it, though. Yeah, the the wrestler and his torn-up BBDs ironing? Ugh. Yeah, that's something you'd expect to see in a different kind of magazine. You know, one that's usually wrapped in plastic, and you have to ask the uh, person behind the counter if he can get it for you, and you have to show ID. Yeah, ugh. Anyway, Michael continues, I'm glad you have more or less enjoyed the Green Lantern annual so far. I know you call them a mixed bag, but in my experience, a mixed bag of annuals is pretty much the best you can hope for. Of course, you do have JL Ape and Planet DC ahead. Good luck with those. To pull back the curtain, I already recorded the annual with uh, JL Ape. Well, obviously it'll be released by the time, and yeah... Didn't have much good with that, anyway. But thank you, Michael, for writing in. If you guys would like to write in, the email address, of course, as I said before, is just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. Please, if you want to write in, or if you want to tell me how well I'm doing, if you want to share something about what I talked about on the show, please write in and let me know. I always love hearing your feedback. But right now, it's time to close the email back up, take a look at the comic we're going to be covering today, one of the comics at least, Green Lantern number 121. Green Lantern number 121 was cover dated February 2000 and released on December 1st of 1999. We're ending up the 90s, folks. Uh, it's coming close. The cover price was $1.99 US and 325 Canada, and the title was New World. The writer was Ron Mars, penciler Daryl Banks, inker Dan Davis, colors and separations were by Rob Schwager, letterer was Chrissy Leopolis, assistant editor was L.A. Williams, and the editors were Bob Schreck and Mike Carlin. Mornings are not Kyle Rayner's thing, especially when his morning is begun by the sun shining through his window and illuminating the Green Lantern-populated city on New Oa. Especially, especially when he hears the voice of Jenny Lynn Hayden calling her husband back to bed. Cal thinks that all of this is a hallucination, but a little offering of some mouth-to-groin resuscitation quickly gets him to overlook his situation. Unfortunately, the couple experience Ganthet Interruptus, as the floaty head of the Last Guardian appears in Cal's bedroom, ordering him to report at his sanctuary. Donning their uniforms, because this is still a code-approved book, our hitched heroes head to the hacienda of the Last Guardian. 
As he's flying over the landscape, Kyle wonders just what the heck's going on. Last thing he knew, he was sleeping in his bed, recovering from a gunshot wound. And now he's married to Jenny, replicated his ring, and started a functioning new core. But his confusion will have to be put on hold as he reaches Gantheth's condo and gets the skinny on why he was summoned. It appears that Lantern Car Choda hasn't been responding for quite some time, and Ganthet fears that it's the controllers who might be behind his disappearance. Not certain what's going on, Jenny tells the Guardian that they'll take care of it as they head out. Outside, Jenny once again tries to sell the veracity of what Cal has done by playing a little tonsil hockey. Kyle still isn't sure that this is just a dream, but as he has a job to do, he plans on getting it done. Some time has passed, and Kyle has assembled a squad of lanterns to find out just what happened to Choda. The squad approaches a desolated planet, and Kyle splits the lantern up into pairs to search for Choda or his ring. Of course, Kyle and Jenny team up and eventually find the missing lantern, impaled on an ancient altar by none other than... Effigy. The Firestorm wannabe taunts the lanterns, bidding them to catch him, and after a bit of McFightenstein between the two, the two lanterns fortunately do catch up with him. Unfortunately, they find that Kyle isn't the only one with a brand new core backing him up, as Effigy has one as well. After last issue being a character-driven story, we're back to the more heroic tales that go on in this book. Add to that the whole rebirth of the core, Jenny being married to Kyle, and the introduction of the effigy cores, and it all adds up to a really great issue. Dan Davis from Guy Gardner Warrior fame is on doing the inks, and they work pretty well with Banks' art. The story is your typical Wizard of Oz type plot where a hero wakes up and finds that he's not in Kansas anymore, and has to deal with the fallout of all of it. It's not a wholly original idea, but it is pretty well executed, and the stinger at the end, with Effigy, possibly Kyle's best villain to date, now having a core backing him up, really sells the book. I do, however, want to mention up front about the change in editors in the book. Last issue, Kevin Dooley left the editor position after being on the book since its beginning, pretty much, and this issue, Bob Shrek and Mike Carlin are co-editing the book. Co-editing the book. I'm not certain if this has anything to do with Ron Mars leaving the book in a few issues, or whether Ron Mars leaving was because of the switch up in the editorial staff, but it is an odd coincidence. Hopefully I may be able to talk to him about that at some time. But let's go ahead and look into specific notes for the issue. We'll start with the cover, which is a decent enough cover, showing Kyle and Jenny arm in arm, both as Green Lanterns, flanked, uh, or actually... Proceed, not preceded, but followed by the rest of the Green Lantern Corps and a, a very unique-looking Green Lantern battery on what looks to be Oa. It's a nice image. Uh, I will admit, Banks' artwork here, it's looking good except for Kyle's right arm. It's supposed to show sort of a perspective look as his arm is out in front of him and his hands balled up into the fist, but it just looks a bit too big for the artwork here, so a minor little quibble, but an, an okay cover. Pages 1 and 2, we get a really good two-page splash that sets up the mystery going on throughout the whole book, as we see Kyle looking out the window and basically seeing all of Oa, or essentially the city on New Oa, populated by Green Lanterns flying around in jet cars, Green Lanterns flying around, statues, and a very unique central power battery, so you've got to wonder, coming in from last issue, just what the heck's going on, as definitely Kyle's doing that. Page 5, panel 4, Kyle and Jenny have, you know, had a relationship before, and they've been in a relationship, and now it seems that they've just taken it to the next level and have gotten married, and throughout this initial opening sequence, both of them are pretty much in their birthday suits, getting out of bed, and yeah, on this panel, uh, panel four on this page, it looks like Jenny's about to give Kyle a little lip service, if you know what I mean. And I think you do. And then on page seven, there's a funny little deal where Kyle is preparing to go see Ganthet after he's contacted him. And for some reason, he completely forgets that he's 
in the buff. And I like this little panel. It's the fifth panel on this page where Jenny kind of looks at him and gives him a little wink. In fact, there's a little wink caption above her in case you didn't see the artwork that basically lets him know that, yeah, maybe he should put some clothes on before he goes out to see the uh, Guardian of the Universe. Page 10, panel 2, we see that Ganthet has a huge scar going down the side of his face and basically covering his left eye. In fact, you really can't tell whether his left eye is there. It's something that's in the previous panels of art with Ganthet, but it's and Kyle even mentions it when he first sees Ganthet, but you don't really get a good look at it until this one panel here, and you've got to kind of wonder what went on with Ganthet to get him this scar, and you know, why is all this going on? It's just another mystery put forward in this book that leads you to believe that something is going amiss. It's it's setting up a good good scenario. Page 12, there's another idea being set forth that this might not be, or that someone may be trying to manipulate Kyle, because Jenny throughout this entire time is trying to prove to him in some way that this is real, mostly by engaging in activities that, you know, would make him want to be with her. So, yeah, by uh, kissing him and offering up uh, other things for him to do, or for her to do to him, is a way to sort of manipulate him into thinking this reality is what is actually reality. Moving on to page 14, we get... uh, some members of the Green Lantern Corps uh, who are helping Kyle out on this mission to find, uh, what, not Kanjar Ro, but Kothar or Kor Kato, whatever his name is. Sorry, Charcota. And they're a unique bunch of lanterns. One of them actually has some continuity with what's going on currently in the Green Lantern comic, as one of them is a Durlin, who I guess is a shapeshifter, kind of along the uh, lines of Chameleon Boy from the uh, Legion of Superheroes. Then another one is a like a bipedal whale with arms. Uh, is basically, his head is that of a giant baleen straining, straining whale, so kind of unique. Then, of course, we have our, our favorite type of Green Lantern class and a Zudarian named Tomar Bor, which I don't know whether he's a relationship to Tomar Ray or Tomar Two, but he's essentially the same species, so you've got that. And then, you know, one of your... Gil Kane type science fiction Green Lanterns. That's a jellyfish type thing with a bunch of tentacle arms that Kyle has deemed Larry, since uh, he can't really pronounce his actual name. It's a cool group of lanterns, and it's nice to see um, Daryl Banks get a chance to draw some of these weird type Gil Kane lanterns, because usually all he gets to draw is Kyle, so that's kind of cool. It must have been fun for him. But then on page 15, panel 1, as the lanterns are flying over this desolate landscape that the uh, missing lantern's supposed to be on, we see a skull of an alien that looks very familiar. In fact, it looks a lot like Dr. Zoidberg. Could also look kind of like Cthulhu, but I think it looks a lot more like Zoidberg. So, unfortunately, yeah, they killed off Zoidberg in this book. Disappointing. But that's about it for all the notes I have, except for uh, the final page, page 22, where we get the idea of an opposing core, and I think it's a really great one. I hope someday someone down the line will come and flesh that out even more. I mean, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be very bright for a person to come up with the idea of a bunch of alternate cores and you know, not basically say that it was done here in the in the late 90s by uh, Ron Mars. No one would do that, would they? Huh. But that does it for the book. Let's go ahead and turn around and see what the last of the 1990s has to offer in advertisements to entice us to buy things from the comic. The front inside cover is an advertisement for the Sega Dreamcast game Toy Commander that looks like a flying game where you fly a prop plane around a bunch of rooms and shoot down balloons and rubber ducks and things like that. Looks interesting. The graphics look good on it, but unfortunately the Dreamcast was slowly slipping into obscurity because of the rise of the Sony PlayStation. 
And speaking of slipping into obscurity, we get the same ad for the Sony mini discs. Yeah, they went nowhere. I don't even know why I'm still talking about them. Then right after that, we get a uh, page for nextplanetover.com. I'm certain you heard my email at the beginning of the show, uh, Michael Bradley, talking about what it was. It wouldn't surprise me that the forums for the site just slowly went to hell once the once the website kind of failed. So there you have it. Then a few pages in, you've got an advertisement for a bunch of PlayStation 1 accessories, including an S-video cable, memory cards, a link cable, a multi-tap, no idea what that is, RFU adapters, a couple of DualShock analog controllers, basically advertisements for stuff that you could add on to the Sony PlayStation. So not only are they pimping the PlayStation pretty well, but they're also deciding to market their little line of goods that you could hook up to your TV. Nowadays, it's pretty much an HDMI cable. How far we've come. After that, we've got an ad for the Game Boy Color game, a Polaris Snowcross, and snow is spelled without a W because it's cool to leave letters out of your promotions for titles of games. And it looks like a pretty cool game. It's a, essentially a racing track game where you race a snowmobile around a around a rink of racers, I guess. It's it's in color. The Game Boy Color looks pretty cool. It's, it's still the Game Boy Color that's essentially the brick version rather than the flip-up version, so eh, kind of neat there. We get the Life is Hard drug control policy advertisement. That's the Scantron thing. We mentioned that previously on the show. As well as the ad for the PlayStation game Spyro Ripto's Revenge, which is Spyro 2, where you play the dragon flying around burning things. So, yeah, I'm certain this probably got people in trouble because, you know, kids would play it and want to burn down their house. Whatever. Then we get a sort of minimalist full-page ad for Joe Kubert's World of Cartooning Correspondence Courses. Unfortunately, there's no uh, letters of recommendation from a Rob Kelly, but that would have been kind of cool if we would have had something there from him. But I don't know whether Rob was attending school at this time or not. He, he might have already been graduated. I have no idea. Then we've got an advertisement for the home video release of the movie Austin Powers' The Spy Who Shacked Me, which has... Mike Myers in his Dr. Evil get-up, uh, and the caption at the top saying, This movie is now on sale for $1 billion. You know, the concept of Michael Myers in the, or not Michael Myers, Mike Myers in the Austin Powers movie, especially the first one, The International Man of Mystery, was kind of clever. It, it was a little independent film that was kind of amusing and you know, fun to watch and had a sort of take on the 60s aesthetic that was generally amusing. But after that, the movies just became so self-referential and so aware of itself that they just became really annoying. Uh, in fact, in the second and third movies, the only thing that really amused me was Scott Evil, played by, what, uh, Seth Green? Seth Green? Yeah. Yeah, it was the same thing with the Shrek movies. I think Michael, I think Mike Myers has that capability of taking original little quirky films and then just playing them into the ground where they essentially become not very fun to watch after a while. Then after that, we get our first house ad for the issue. It's the Gen 13 Carney Folk, uh, I guess, comic series, maybe? It's a, No, it's a 40-page one-shot uh, from Wildstorm Comics, and it has a very hip and trendy girl with a belly shirt on holding some cotton candy. I have no idea who any of the Gen 13 characters are, so if anyone wants to write in and fill me in, please do. After that, we've got an ad for ketchup. Heinz ketchup, which has a person squirting a bottle of ketchup upside down, and the ketchup is flowing out of it, and it's almost empty, and they the upside-down advertisement on the bottle says, Thick and Rich Obscene Noises for Heinz 57 Ketchup. Yeah, really, I don't get it. And then, oh boy, an advertisement for the DVD and video release of Wild Wild West. 
and you know the movie's good when the only thing that they can do to promote it is the fact that it has two chart-topping music videos, Will Smith's Wild Wild West and Enrique, Enrique Iglesias's Bayamos. I'm certain those were the only two things that were enjoyable to watch on this DVD or video. The Hey Kids comment page, which is essentially... Well, it's not a stand-in for the letters page. Well, no, it is a stand-in for the letters page, because they don't have any letters for this comic. Basically advertise what they'll be missing in the 20th century and what they'll be selling for the 21st century. As they've got a list of DC's Millennium Editions, including Action Number 1, Brave and the Bold 28, Detective Comics 27, Sandman Number 1, Green Lantern Green Arrow 76, Showcase Number 4, Crisis on Infinite Earths Number 1, Mad Number 1, Wildcats number one, really, and Man of Steel number one. So these were the uh, iconic comics of the uh, 20th century. Wildcats number one. Yeah. <sighs> okay. The back inside cover has an advertisement for Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six, which, oddly enough, only seems to... Well, no, it's not only on the Nintendo 64. It's also on the PlayStation and the Game Boy Color. It is kind of odd to see a first-person shooter on the lines of Tom Clancy's-type uh, games to show up on the Nintendo 64, but uh, it's interesting. And then the back outside cover is another ad for douchebags. No, not douchebags, I'm sorry. It's just douchebags who are advertising Levi's L2 jeans, which again, you can get at Kohl's, Mervyn's, Goodies, and Sears. So, yeah, go out and get your douchey clothes so you can look like this idiot. <sighs> if this is what, you know, the 2000s are bringing us, I will gladly take the goofiness of the 90s over it any day. But that does it for the comic. I'm going to go ahead and take a break, and when we get back, we're going to be covering something a little different this time. Something called Green Lantern, Secret Files and Origins, number one. Hi, my name is Mike, and I like comic books. Okay, so what do you think about Ben Affleck being Batman? No, I said I like comic books. That's a movie, and I couldn't care less. Well, it's a comic book movie. Really? Did you go see the magazine movie? Or do you watch the television book? I like comic books. You know, those things make for paper, especially the old ones. Whoa, those things. Are they CGC 9.8? No, you're missing the point. I like to actually read comic books, especially the old ones. I like them so much, I even build a website to tell other people about them. Does it have any information about uh, Avengers 2? No, it has info about actual comic books. Lots of covers, creator credits, character appearance lists, story synopsis notes, and so much more. Hmm, that sounds interesting. Where can I find it? It's at mikesamazingworld.com. Do I have to read anything? Reading makes my brain hurt. You can just look at the pictures if you want. Or you can listen to my podcast, where I talk about the history of DC Comics, especially the old ones. So I can listen to a comic book podcast? It's a podcast about comic books. You can find it at twotruefreaks.com. What's it called? Mike's Amazing World of DC History. History? You mean like before Twitter? Yes, the world actually did exist long before Twitter. My show is for comic book fans, especially the old ones. So check out Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the website, and listen to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, the podcast, for information and fun related to actual comic books, especially the old ones. Holy nightmare. So we all know who Robin is, right? Short pants, bad, holy insert object gear jokes, kind of weird relationship with an older man who dresses like a bat. I know, right? So not what Batman needs. Thing is, if that's your impression of Robin, then you don't know Robin. 
I'm Tom Panneries, and for most of my comic collecting career, I've been a Teen Titans fan. Moreover, I've been a huge fan of Robin and Nightwing. So I've decided to take a look at those who have worn the costume in a podcast miniseries called Taking Flight. Taking Flight focuses on the life and career of Dick Grayson as he evolved from Boy Wonder to Nightwing. I'll take a look at his origin story, his time with the Teen Titans, and his evolution into Nightwing. Along the way, I'll also look at Jason Todd and Tim Drake, stopping right after Zero Hour when Dick left the Titans behind. Episodes will come out just about every week at takingflight.podomatic.com, and you can find show notes at popcultureaffidavit.com. Join me as I take a look at Comic Dumb's most famous sidekick, who is a vital part of Batman's mythos. And we're back. And this time, uh, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to take a look at Green Lantern Secret Files and Origins number one. It came out uh, on, it has a cover date of July 1998 and came out on May 27th of 1998. It was, had a cover price of $4.95 US and $5.95 in Canada. So pretty pricey comic, but you get a lot of page count here. And I'm going to forego the whole synopsis thing because, well, the synopsis of the stories really isn't all that important. It's stuff that we all should know. The first story in the book is called Guy Talk, and it was written by Ron Mars, penciled by Liam Moderer, inked by Dan Davis, lettered by Chris Eliopoulos, and colored by Tom McGraw. And essentially, it's Guy Gardner at Warrior's Bar, welcoming you into the bar and telling you the origin story of the various Green Lanterns, including Alan Scott, Hal Jordan, John Stewart, Kyle Rayner, and himself, of course. Plus, it also relates the tale of Hal going rogue and turning into parallax and tells a little something extra. Basically, when Ganthet came to Earth to deliver the ring to someone, initially he delivered it to Guy. Guy, who was in his warrior phase, however, told Ganthet to stuff it, which eventually led the ring to fall into the hands of Kyle. It's an interesting tale. Uh, Motorer does a pretty good job with the art. Guy looks a little off at times. But Ron Mars really sells the story with, you know, his dialogue from basically taking Guy and having him talk to you, the reader. Looking through the book, there's really not that many, very many notes that I have to put on these pages. It's it's a nice story. It's, like I said, well-written. Page 15, however, which is the introduction of John, the art does look kind of off. Um, Lee Motor does a pretty poor job of drawing John. In fact, it's... I hate to say this, it looks very unflattering. John looks... He looks ape-like, I hate to say. It's not very pleasant. He he has the stereotypical, negatively stereotypical look of a, of a black man with very pronounced, oversized lips. And, and this image of where he's screaming, it, it just looks bad. Fortunately, the story that Ron Mars is telling definitely makes up for the art because, yeah, in certain parts, the artwork is looking at giving it a second look. The artwork is kind of poor. Then later on in the book, they've got a little story with Kyle, and it looks like he's facing off against some of his enemies, one of them being Sonar. However, it's not the Sonar that Kyle fought in the Green Lantern comics, not the hair metal one and the tight spandex, nor the all short-haired, tatted-out, metal-piercing-doubt sonar. It looks like the classic maestro version of sonar, so that's kind of odd. But the story finishes off with Guy um, unveiling the painting that we've seen in the Warrior's Bar, the painting of uh, basically the, all the Earth-based lanterns at the time. And, you know, overall, aside from art wonkiness, the story was really great. Uh, I thought... That was a part of the good part of it. But yeah, art-wise, there was some pretty pretty negative parts in this. So that part of the book was, yeah, average. But after that initial story, we get essentially treated to a, 
well, what I would consider to be a who's who update specifically for Green Lantern, especially Green Lantern from the 90s. Page 27, and we get uh, the who's who profile on Kyle Rayner. It was written by Ron Mars with pencils by Daryl Banks and inks by Terry Austin. It's, it's a good picture with Kyle in the foreground charging up his ring, standing on his sort of yin-yang Green Lantern symbol. While in the Serpent, you've got uh, Kyle sketching out members of the JLA. It's, it's a nice image. The dialogue, of course, mentioned how he had to take responsibility for being Green Lantern after the murder of Alexandra DeWitt and how he's eventually become to be accepted by the Justice League. So nice entry for Kyle. And then the next two pages are about Hal Jordan and Parallax, and they're written by Scott Beatty with pencils by Paul Pelletier and inks by Bob Wyacek. And it essentially tells Hal Jordan's origin stories. He was a test pilot who was chosen by Abin Sur to wield the ring for Sector 2814, and eventually how Mongol and uh, the cyborg Superman destroyed Coast City, which basically turned old Hal Bat Guano crazy and made him take on the persona of Parallax and try and rewrite the universe in Zero Hour. Pelletier does a good job of drawing both Hal Jordan in his Green Lantern costume and him in the Parallax costume. It's not as over the top as I've seen it many times before in the book, so it looks good here. The shoulder, the shoulder pads aren't ridiculous, but it is a very, very 90s costume regardless. But Pelletier does a good job with it. The strange thing is, Hal Jordan's got gray temples in both images, both as Parallax and as Green Lantern. So that's weird because I thought it was Parallax who caused the gray temples. Moving on to the next page, we've got Alan Scott slash Sentinel, uh, which is written by Matt Brady and has pencils and inks by Tom Mandrake. It looks really nice. It's a very, it's Alan Scott as the more youthful uh, hero of Sentinel rather than the way we see him in the current comics. I'm not certain. I'm going to check real quick. This issue did come out a couple of months after Green Lantern Sentinel Heart of Darkness, which essentially aged up uh, Alan Scott back to his normal age. That makes any sense. But the art easily could have been commissioned before those issues came out, so they would have thought of Alan as the uh, younger version of him, so that would have made sense why it got printed here. It is odd in the dialogue that there is no mention of Ian Carcool, keeping the JSAers youthful throughout this time, but yeah, yeah, there you go. Not a bad entry. But the next one is obviously my favorite. It's the advertiser or the who's who entry for Guy Gardner Warrior. And you get uh, art by Kevin McGuire, which is always nice. Uh, the writer for the dialogue was Matt Brady and inks were by Carl Story. And essentially you get Guy Gardner in his original Green Lantern uniform, then his bowl cut and JLA uniform, and then Guy Gardner's Warrior. And uh, again, McGuire does a, it's not his best work, but I think, McGuire's average work is usually far superior to most artists' great output. So I think it's really good. And plus the pose here is you see Guy in his Green Lantern, original Green Lantern uniform at the top. And then in the middle, a little lower, you see Guy sort of giving bunny ears to Guy Gardner Warrior, who's down at the bottom. So it's it's an amusing little piece of art here. One of the humorous blurbs they do have on the... Uh, on the artwork here, it says he was accidentally trapped in a phantom-like zone for over a year after being caught in a freak power battery accident. And that's a uh, clever retconning of Guy being zapped into the phantom zone, which happened pre-crisis, which I guess essentially doesn't exist post-crisis. So yeah, there you go. The next entry in the book is Jade. It's written by Matt Brady and uh, penciled by Jeff Johnson and inked by Rodney Ramos. And it's a nice image of Jade in a sort of, well, uh, she's sort of squatting, getting ready to take a photograph. She looks really cute. Um, Johnson does give her a bit of some biceps here. And, you know, she does look a little bit ripped in her abs, but she doesn't look... She doesn't look unfeminine. Uh, it's just the pose with her 
the way she's sort of sitting on one of her feet in this sort of squatting position is kind of suggestive, I guess. But, you know, it's a good-looking piece of art. I do have to mention, though, that the page also says that Obsidian is part of this entry as well, and the profile page that they have at the index of the book really doesn't mention Obsidian, and essentially you really can't see him very much. He might be a bit in the surprint and some of the photos behind Jenny, but yeah, the, the predominant thing coming out of the image here is Jenny, so the less said about Obsidian, I think, at the time was the less the better said about him, probably. The next entry is for John Stewart, and it essentially, let's see, who is it written by? It's uh, written by Scott Beatty with inks by Cully Hamner. Um, it's kind of mad. It's got John in the foreground, you know, sketching on his sketch pad for his artistic or his architectural designs. While in the background, it's predominantly green, showing John in his uh, GL uniform flanked by a uh, guardian of the universe. There is a slight mention of the Mosaic world in the dialogue for his entry, but it's there's no entry for, there's no information about him almost becoming a human guardian himself. I'm thinking that's probably one of those things that DC really didn't want to talk about at the time. It does mention, of course, that he was injured during the fight between Graven and Kyle, and eventually Hal Jordan gave him the ability to walk again when the final night event occurred. But, yeah, it's it's just an average entry for John, which I guess is kind of disappointing. After that, we get the little interlude in a two-page splash written by Ron Mars and has pencils and ink by the awesome Phil Jimenez, which essentially details Warrior's Bar, and it's Guy taking you through a visual tour of Warrior's Bar. It's kind of cool. There's sections called the Lantern Lounge, which is essentially Green Lantern theme. There's a Glory Days Lounge, which is gen- which is obviously designated a place for General Glory and that sort of 1950s Captain America type feel. There was a Warriors part, which is more Aztec temple type thing, and there's the main bar that proudly. Maybe not so proudly, displays Guy Gardner's armor from the Booster Gold days, where Booster made him that awful armor before he became Voldarian Guy Gardner. Plus, it also sets up that he had a Manhunter robot in the Warriors Bar, which, as you know, played an event in a previous issue of Green Lantern. So, thanks, Guy, for putting that there. The next page goes back to the who's who type entries, and we've got the Guardian of the Universe Ganthet in all his swanky smoking jacket and ponytail look. Um, the story is by, or the words are by Matt Brady, with pencils by Craig Rousseau and Vince Russell. Um, it's a very cartoony looking Guardian. The Serpent has essentially just green with a, a lantern in the background, and other members of the Guardians, you know holding their arms out like they're getting ready to do, I don't know, a scene from Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. I don't know. It does give a nice little mention at the bottom of it that uh, on a recent trip to the 30th century, Kyle Rayner was incapacitated, and Ganthet reappeared and gave the ring for a short while to carry Ren, Kyle's descendant. So it's nice that they reference the storyline that happened right before issue 100 of Green Lantern. That's kind of cool that at least Carrie Wren gets a mention in this book. After that, we get another short story called Kyle Rayner's Sketchbook, and it was written by Ron Mars and penciled by Paul Pelletier and Daryl Banks, inked by Terry Austin. And it's, it's essentially the story of Jenny coming into Kyle's work desk where he's been sketching and looking at some of the sketches that he's got. Now, I think the initially the initial opening of the book is drawn by Banks and inked by Austin, because it does have a bit of that unfortunate Austin and Banks feel that it's not the best art, but it's far, far better than stuff that I've seen before. Most of the sketch work looks like it's done, looks like it's done by Pelletier. Uh, it's got some neat stuff. It's got Kyle in a New World Order t-shirt. It's got images of Wonder Woman. Fatality is a sort of 
Oh, 70s blaxploitation character. Kind of interesting. Got some some sort of goofy images of Kyle as an anime character, you know, with giant sort of open eyes, you know, saying, you know, can you how can you tell I don't drink decaf? Um, sketches of him in various different costumes, including a parallax-looking Kyle costume, which he dubs Kylax. I guess that's interesting. Some more sketches of Jenny nearing the end. And then finally, uh, she looks upon a, a sketch of her sleeping, which I guess is kind of creepy and I guess kind of nice because at the bottom of the at the bottom of the sketch, Kyle's you know signed it beautiful. So kind of touching. Yet you know the fact that someone's watching me while I sleep, sketching me would kind of unnerve me. But hey, that's that's just me. After that, we head back to the Who's Who entries, and this one's an interesting one. It's written by Ron Mars, with pencils by George Genty and inks by Dexter Vines. It's the Bleecker Street Irregulars, so it covers basically all the people who live in Kyle's apartment, including Radu, Lee Adamson, and Lee Chang, the two, the well, the female couple who are living in the apartment. Uh, let's see who else. Nathan Strassman, the NYA you film student, Allison Chandler, the flirty girl who's trying to break up Kyle, Cleveland Rose, the four-of-line sax person, that's not a stereotype at all, and Rachel Genty, the crazy cat lady who was a uh, former village person who says that she, uh, who said that she uh, had past friendships with uh, Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac, so yeah, hippie chick. After that, there's an interview with Jade, written by Ron Mars, and had penciled by Joe Phillips and inks by Jason Rodriguez. There's not much art to be said here. There's a couple of headshots of Jade that that look pretty nice. She's got a very very kind of Jim Lee image-type look. Uh, she looks good. Her haircut's a little different, uh, but the story is essentially an interview with Jade. There is, however, a, uh, a ridiculous pinup of her, which shows her in her... Essentially, the uniform that she was wearing during the Heart of Darkness thing that uh, was one of those uncomfortable bikinis that had the... really didn't leave much for the imagination and actually had the included bonus of a uh, boob window as well. So, yeah, there you go. This brings us back to the Who's Who entries, which uh, starts out with Dr. Polaris, the brand new all-purple Magneto wannabe Dr. Polaris, and it really is kind of a goofy entry where Dr. Polaris didn't get the phone call that images pretty much stopped doing the goofiness, and he can take off that ridiculous, ridiculous helmet. Uh, oh, and if I didn't mention, Dr. Polaris was written by Scott Beatty with pencils by Ron Lim and inks by Chris Ivey. The next page has Sinestro, which was written by Scott Beatty, with pencils by J.H. Williams and inks by Mick Gray. I think this was in the era where J.H. Williams still was kind of new, and his artwork really isn't that great. It's, and I think that's kind of evidenced by most of the art is covered up by the energy or light emanating off Sinestro's ring. Basically... Not really covering, but obscuring a lot of the uh, character design. So that's kind of disappointing. It mentions that Sinestro tried to raid Oa and was eventually trapped inside the power battery, which was how the Guardians were able to bring forth during the whole Emerald Twilight storyline and have him fight Hal Jordan. Of course, that led to his neck getting snapped and Sinestro getting all dead and stuff, so... Yeah, he'll he'll never be back. The next entry is for Sonar 2, written by Ron Mars, with pencils and inks by Tom Greinberg. And yeah, it's the hair metal, now cybernetically enhanced Sonar. Uh, it's got a nice image of him looking all crazy and stuff, shooting his sonar waves you know, in the uh, foreground, while in the background you get people covering their ears as buildings topple on top of them, which can't be good. They mention in the uh, in the dialogue that Sonar's plans have been repeatedly thwarted by Green Lantern Kyle Rayner, and any connection to the previous Sonar mul uh, 
Baldarian inventor and terrorist, uh, Bob Walden, or Beto Walden, is pure conjecture at this point, though their sonic powers appear to share numerous similarities. So chances are this sonar is not really the son or offspring or in any way related to the original sonar. He's just taken the same name and has the same power. So, yeah, what, what are the chances of that? The next part of the book is a six-page story called Lost Pages, Kyle Meets Hal Jordan's Old Girlfriend and Best Friend. It was written by Ron Mars and had pencils by George Genty and inks by Dexter Vines. Essentially, it's a tale of, well, Carol Ferris and Tom Pryface, Kalamaku at Ferris Aircraft doing duties when suddenly a, strangely enough, a lantern falls to the ground and starts an enormous fire because, yeah, things. Of course, there's someone who comes to rescue them, a person shining in green armor, and who could it be? Why, it's Green Lantern. But not Hal Jordan Green Lantern, it's Kyle Rayner Green Lantern who rescues the duo and takes them off to safety. Of course, Carol's none too appreciative of this new Green Lantern, and she kind of feels that he's not going to really stand up to the measurements that old Hal was able to do. But it wasn't a bad little story. The, the artwork by Genty is pretty good, and Carol looks pretty young, though. She's got a very pixie-like look. Um, Tom still looks like Tom, though. And the story ends, essentially, with Carol being kind of upset because the explosion that happened, because for whatever reason they had a kerosene-burning lantern just around fuel tanks, for God knows what reason. The only thing that she's kind of upset about is she lost a picture of Hal Jordan, which we see at the end of the story burning up in flames. So, irony? After that, we head back to the Who's Who entries, and we get Dr. Light, the... I don't know, the rapey Dr. Light, so yeah. It's got text by Matt Brady, pencils by Anthony Williams, and inks by Andy Lanning. Uh, it's not a bad image of Dr. Light. He's kind of got firestorm hair, though, as his hair or head seems to be all ablaze. There's really not much to do with the serpent, it's just orange swirliness. They do mention that he was imprisoned in the power battery for many a year, and he feels that there's an entire world inside the Green Lantern power battery, which would make sense, because there's myriad other things that are trapped inside that giant green power battery. Then, after that, we get essentially the Slipknot entry of the book. Yes, it's my favorite rogue from this era of Green Lantern, Graven. And by favorite, I mean not favorite at all. He's the uh, supposed bastard son of Darkseid who's got quasi-omega beams shooting out of his eyes and some big, you know, master, Masters of the Universe jam on his chest. Ugh. I hated this character. Seriously. I, and, uh, just awful. I know he's going to come back later, but that just disappoints me even more. But after that, we go from the lamest villain in Kyle's Rogues Gallery to perhaps one of the best in Effigy. This one is written by Ron Mars again, and with pencils and inks by Dave Johnson. It's a pretty simplistic-looking version of Effigy. His constructs are kind of neat. It's a sort of four-headed snake flame thing that's coming out of his hand. He looks very Superman adventurers or Batman adventurers. His artwork has that sort of Ty Templeton, Mike Parabak type look. It's good. And he is one of the only people who seems to get his own symbol, as it's a hand with a flame in the middle of it. So, yeah, I guess that's his symbol. Hooray. After that, we get a timeline of the Green Lantern universe, starting with uh, 10 billion years ago, with the uh, Malthusians creating Oa at the center of the universe. It talks about Krona and the crisis, or basically starting the crisis by looking into the anti or looking into the antimatter universe. Details Alan Scott coming into his own in 1939. Uh, talks about John Stewart gaining the ring and Guy Gardner gaining the ring. Has some repurposed art from it looks like JLI issues, uh, original Martin O'Dell Green Lantern issues. The uh, showcase presents number 20, where Hal Jordan uh, met with Avin Sewer. 
Um, I can't remember what it, it's one of the images from Green Lantern, Green Arrow. I'm not certain if it's from the initial one that it came from, but it's uh, basically Ollie, you know, pointing his finger at Hal. We get the fight for the ring between Hal and Guy, where Hal sucker punches Guy, which is disappointing. We see uh, Hal turn into Parallax. Uh, Ganthet give the ring to Kyle. We get an image of Guy Gardner in his warrior mode. Kind of cool. Uh, it also has uh, props to the 30th century, where Kyle met up with the Legion and Carrie Wren took the ring for a while, and also links to the 58th century, where Hal Jordan eventually became Paul Manning and helped protect the Earth that way. So, kind of a neat timeline for the time. So, interesting look at the Green Lanterns from there. And then the last page of the book is uh, Fatality, and it's a really nice piece of art by Stuart Eminen and Jose Marzan Jr., with the uh, text piece written by Ron Mars. Um, not much going on in the background. It's her with a not quite so incomparably ridiculous spear, but she looks really good. She does have very, very bouncing and behaving hair, though, but her outlook or her outfit isn't quite as ridiculous as you've seen in some other books. Um, She's got a symbol on her chest, though, that I don't think I've seen in any other iterations of her. Uh, it's kind of a weird V-shaped symbol, but, you know, maybe I just didn't remember that. And that is essentially it. Uh, this was a bit of a different read-through, as I really had no notes and was just kind of going through the issue as its own. So, if this felt more rambling or less focused than before, I apologize for that. But, you know, I figured writing out an individual entry for each one would just be kind of a waste of my time, since I'm basically doing just what I'm doing right here. Plus, you know, I'll peel back the curtain a little bit. I've been kind of busy these past couple of weeks, so I apologize if my ramblings were even more rambly than before. But that's going to do it for now. Next time out on another episode of Just One of the Guys, we're going to be, of course, covering the next issue of Green Lantern, surprisingly enough, which is Green Lantern number 122, where we find out just what the heck is going on with the Effigy Corps, with Kyle, the Green Lantern Corps, and what's been happening. Is it all a dream? Is Kyle in some deep psychotic stupor because of his gunshot wound? Are Effigy and the controllers behind it? You'll just have to find out next time. Hopefully you'll be back next time as we cover that book, plus another uh, jump into the Secret Files book, Secret Files number two. Hope you'll all be back in seven days to hear me ramble on about it as I've rambled on so much this time out. Thanks everyone for downloading and listening, though, and we'll catch you next time on another episode of Just One of the Guys. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Greenland podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two and you can subscribe to the show there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeBonsacore contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast. The opening music for today's show was Peaches and Herb and their song, Reunited. If you'd like to buy this song, which I guess if you're wanting to 
romance your lady in the most 70s way possible, the best way to get this song is through Amazon.com and downloading it or buying a CD. Of course, the best way to get to Amazon.com is by going through 2TrueFreaks.com. If you go to 2TrueFreaks.com, there's a little banner in the upper left-hand corner of the website. Click on that and you'll be transported to Amazon where you can buy this song, any other sort of 70s love song, some, some maybe some Barry White to get your woman or man in the mood, if that's what it does. Plus, you can also buy electronics, games, toys, any entertainment thing that you could imagine at ridiculously low prices. And every time you use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to go to Amazon, a small amount of your purchase price goes back to the website. It won't cost you anything extra, and it really, really helps us out. So, whenever you're thinking about wooing your loved one with some sweet, soulful songs by Peaches and Herb, please make sure you use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. 